from the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, a very pleasant uh, good morning to you. It is the 2nd of August, 2023, and we are live here this morning. Sorry about the delay. Generally started at 10, but uh, there were cobwebs in the cattywampuses and the computer nodules, and um, we called NASA, and they, they worked it out. So it was pretty good. Um, Voyager 2, beam back, and now we're going. So if you'd like to be on the show and talk about money, that's what we talk about on the first uh, Wednesday of every month. We talk about money, honey, money. Some people say money wake, uh, makes the world go round. Well, that's true. The world is going pretty fast because there's a lot of money sloshing around out there. Fred Jaszewski is our uh, Wednesday guest, the first Wednesday. Uh, Fred is a good friend. I've known him for, gosh, 25 years now. When I first met Andrew Goss in the mid-90s, and Fred turned out when I met Andrew, uh, Fred Jaszewski is Andrew's partner in their gold and silver operation. They called SDL. After Andrew uh, left and did about, what, 12 years of live shows here on One Radio Network, and uh, Andrew left the playing field, and Fred rebooted his company. is now called U.S. Coin Capital. Essentially the same uh, integrity and the experience is still there with Fred and his ability to understand the monetary system and run this company, U.S. Coin Capital. And uh, we'll tell you more about that. So without further ado, as I used to say in the biz, Fred Dashevsky. Good, good morning, Fred. We made it. I mean... You know, it's well, good. good morning, Patrick. After yeah. a few moments of technical issues, glad to be with you. Yeah, nice to be here with you. You're in Hilton Head, right? Hilton Head? I am. A little bit warm here, but I know in Texas you guys are experiencing the same thing. So, Brother, except for maybe Phoenix, we are uh, amongst the hottest cities in the country right now. Wow, yeah. We, they're talking 105, 106 for the, night, for the weekend here. Pretty interesting. How? Whatever it is. Hope your power grid holds up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about, uh, oh, I sent you that little bit about the interest rates from Rubino. I sent you that during sure. the past week, which is pretty curious. He's he's saying, what, in the next year or so, at 5%, you know, interest rate, which is the blended interest rate, the U.S. Gov, we the people, well, we're going to be getting close to, what, $1.7 trillion um, a year? And interest payments. And interest payments. Wow. Just interest. Yeah. Think about that. You got your credit card and they got your interest payment. And the treasury, we the people, 1.7, that's a T, trillion T. in interest payments. And this was and this was $900 billion just two years ago. Wow. So the, the debt that we owe around... Um, how did that work where it got to one trillion uh, when they start raising interest? Well, they didn't start raising interest rates though till recently. So what am I missing? Government spending additional money. Oh, and borrowing at a higher rate? Much more borrowing. Much more borrowing. Right. So they added a big amount to the principal, which of course increases the amount. And then as interest rates have been going up, the Fed has raised rates uh, progressively, you know, what? 10 times or so. So we've seen a massive hike in interest rates and it is beginning to put a lot of pressure on the government's ability to repay its debt. Um, the interest payments are expected within about five or six years 
to surpass the amount <clears throat> that the government spends on the Department of Defense. And that's going to be the first time we've experienced that. So where right now the interest payments are the second item in the government's budget after DOD, uh, it's expected to surpass that within the next five or six years. You know, Ruben pointed out an interesting point in that article, and it's mm -hmm. the idea of a parabolic increase. So, you know, if you draw a graph, everybody remembers graphs from grade school. You've got the L-shaped graph, you know, where the top vertical line is the increase in the amount of either interest or debt. The line that runs horizontal is the passage of time. And what's happening is that the rate at which the interest payments and the debt are climbing are happening so rapidly that the vertical line is not moving, yet the increase continues. So what used to take 20 or 30 years mm. to have an increase. So we went from, let's say, 400 billion in interest payments to now projected 1.7 trillion, mm. where that may have taken 10, 15, 20 years to double. Now it's doubled in less than two years. And if it continues parabolic, that means that the rate at which it increases is going to accelerate really rapidly without any passage of time. And this is where we've gone from, you know, a trillion to 1.7 trillion and, and barely any time has passed. This becomes extremely dangerous because it creates an environment that's almost unsustainable. In fact, this morning, uh, one of the credit yeah, Fitch, rating yeah. agencies, yeah. Fitch, decided to downgrade the U.S. government debt from AAA down to AA+. And, you know, I expressed concern about this, that this is an endgame problem when the credit rating agencies start to look at the environment, do the math, and say, hey, you know, we cannot ignore this anymore. Um, amazingly, the dollar has sort of shrugged off Fitch's announcement, mm -hmm. and it actually went up a little bit today, and I think this is sort of an interesting play. I, I, I wonder whether or not behind the scenes that they're trying to push up the dollar because they're concerned of this type of uh, statement coming out from a credit rating agency. But first time in you know almost 20 years that one of the credit rating agencies has downgraded the U.S. government's debt and their ability to repay their, their funds. We're with Fred Dushevsky. If you'd like to be on the air, phone lines are working, 888-663-6386. We're live here. It is a Wednesday morning, the 2nd of August, OneRadioNetwork.com. Uh, Charlie Sewell is going to be here at noon, and uh, we have a little show that we have with Charlie now and then. He studies all kinds of things uh, legally and lawfully in this country, and we kind of titled the show How to Be Free in an Unfree World. And there's actually some interesting little paperwork you can, you can file to uh, give yourself a little cushion against um, people knocking on your front door. But we'll talk about that with Charlie. Fred, though, let me go back. I, don't, I, I think you misspoke here. You, you said we're about to overtake the Defense Department spending. Well, that's only about $900 billion, isn't it? We've already overtaken that, haven't we? Um, not quite. I mean, as of last year, the Department of Defense spending budget was still larger than the interest on the debts. We're, we're crossing that line. So, uh, we're pretty close if we haven't already, but within less than a year from now, according to these expectations, and I think they're probably accurate, uh, we're going to see that line crossed, and we're going to actually find for the first time that the interest payments that we're carrying on our national debt has become such a large problem for the government that when they budget everything that they do, 
that the interest payments have become, you know, the, the second largest item on, on their budget. And, yeah, that's pretty devastating when, when you can't even carry your principal payments and you're barely able to make interest payments. And it gets to a point where the credit rating agencies around the world are looking at the U.S. dollar. They're looking at the amount of money that the government can generate in revenue, how fast they're spending and deficit spending, because the deficit spending has exploded and they couple these things together and they come up with these analyses and say, hey, this is where we're heading. And, you know, whether it's first or second, it's the numbers that yeah, are really yeah. relevant. And what scares me here is the problem that the rate at which it's accelerating, again, is almost parabolic. And at a, at a parable, you know, when, when you're at that level where no time is passing, but your debt is still increasing really rapidly, it becomes a real flawed process. And it becomes so scary that um you know kevin o'leary was on this morning talking about his experiences around as a uh, international investor and he was yeah, all but aggravated you know um i'll use the word pissed uh, you know expressing his disconcern uh is this discomfort with the way that the u.s government is managing the debt and as an international investor he fears that this problem is going to make us look like argentina and the only thing stabilizing the U.S. dollar to date has been our ability to continue to sell debt. But if the world begins to look at the U.S. government and begins to question its ability to maintain that ability to continue to pay its debt, it creates a real fundamental problem because, you know, we're surviving on our ability to be able to print more treasuries to pay for an ever accelerating amount of money that the government is spending. Yeah. It's a dangerous environment. So maybe I misunderstood. I thought you had said that we were in the 1.2 or something trillion in interest payments right now, like the last few weeks. Did I mis yeah. mishear you? I think that is correct. Okay. So that is already over the amount of DOD. I just don't know what the exact number for DOD okay. is at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I can Google it, but I, I think it's about a trillion. You know, I think it's about it's close. So, yeah. you know, in, in other words, whether it's, you know, a, a touch ahead, touch behind, or Doesn't pretty matter. much close yeah. to even, it, it, you know, when you think about the Department of Defense, that's where the government should be spending money. I mean, we could argue whether or not, you know, we should be adding more to our military spending and whether or not America should be defending the world and utilizing all the capital and reserves when we have so many internal problems domestically, we could be utilizing those funds for. But if we set all that aside and we accept the notion that this is what Congress has decided right. it's going to do, then we have to move forward and say, okay, so we have a Department of Defense budget and it's massive. And, you know, from time to time they increase it. They need to buy, uh, you know, new inventory for the military, all sorts of purposes and reasons that they have there. And But, you know, meanwhile, creeping alongside of it have been the rising interest rates. So this has been kind of a byproduct of the Federal Reserve raising rates is that it is also increasing the cost for the U.S. government. Because when you're carrying 30 plus trillion dollars worth of bonded debt and 75 to 77 trillion in unfunded liabilities, when interest rates go up, it really dramatically increases your cost. The whole deal. And that is becoming a fundamental yeah. problem. So, um, Fred Jashevsky, the, the, this, this debt will never be paid off, right? Never. No I don't way. think so. No way. I mean, if you got a, I don't see there's any way to do it. Yeah. I mean, you 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 could print, you know, forty trillion dollars or a hundred trillion dollars and pay off everything, but 
you know, that as a result would create an inflation rate that would make Argentina look like a good place to be. So we're not going to print our way out of the problem at that pace that rapidly. That would be devastating. It would be uh, an endgame issue. So we're going to have to do this over time and find ourselves with the ability to somehow create just enough money to continue the game, right? You know, like, let's not let it fall apart, but don't print too much to create your own problem to where the inflation gets out of control. And this is kind of what the Fed has been dealing with since COVID. So it took it upon itself to say our, our response to COVID to stimulate economic activity is going to be to create money. And they did it at a pace that no one had ever seen. And people, including me, expressed a, grove, a grave interest in the rate at which they had done this and the extent to which this would have an impact on Americans' lives. And yet they continued to do it. Now they're fighting the problem back by trying to raise interest rates enough to beat back the amount of inflation they created by printing all that money but not do that too much to throw the economy into a significant recession, which would force them then to try to lower interest rates to fight back the problem that they've created, which was the result of trying to fight back the first problem but, that they created. It's becoming, you, you, uh, you know, a, a circle game. You, you couldn't even, you can't even print your way out of the problem because, as you know, and you, we've taught us in Andrew, Federal Reserve prints the dollars, not Treasury. So if they create $33 trillion, loan it to the, to the Treasury to pay off the debt, then they owe Federal Reserve Bank $33 trillion. So you're going to still have debt. I mean... Right. It, uh, it, it just shifts from one place to one another. Place to the so other. look at how much of new debt they had to create just to get past the, the last yeah. debt ceiling problem. Yeah. Wow. So in order to finance what they finally decided to do to get out of that problem, uh, they ended up creating so much additional debt that the Federal Reserve added back onto its balance sheet huge amounts of bonds that it had tried to unwind because if you remember about a year ago the fed made this ridiculous argument that it was going to bring back its balance sheet down to pre-covid levels so they were going to go from the i think we approached 8.9 trillion at the top and they were going to reduce that back to 4.1 trillion within a couple of years by reducing their balance sheet and i thought that was insane and i didn't believe that they had the ability to do it given the government need to raise capital by selling new debt and new bonds every month. And sure enough, here we are, where they had reduced by maybe $400 billion, they added it all right back in, in order to solve the debt ceiling issue. And this was part of the reason that Fitch downgraded the US dollars, because they're saying that this is an insane game. We wait to the last minute, we get to the cliff and then we come up with a solution and the idea that we push it to that point where we're about to go over the cliff into debt and completely destroy the U.S. economy. You know, we come up with an answer at the last minute and Fitch is saying, you know, you can't run a country like that. That, that is not uh, a comfortable way to provide uh, confidence to the U.S. Yeah, the world that the government will continue to be able to make its payments. And, you know, so the the first, I would say, in a series of problems is a U.S. downgrade, which we are now seeing the first one. There may be more to follow. And again, this is sort of being shrugged off, which is interesting. I mean, uh, the economy is effectively ignoring that the stock market doesn't like it. The stock market took this more seriously than the dollar did. In fact, the dollar went up this morning. So that's kind of bizarre. The next thing that would happen is an actual default where the government misses a payment then we really experience a spiral, a downward spiral that would be very difficult to catch. And, and talk about, you know, trying to catch a falling knife. Yeah. That would be insanely if, difficult so, and dangerous. So, Fred, what, what is their end game? What do you, are you, 
What do you think they're thinking at night when they get their 40-year-old scotch out there and try to figure this out? Do they have an end game? Do, do they just going to keep going until, as Andrew used to say, they'll run out of zeros? I mean, what do you think? Um, what do you think? First of all, do? can you tell me where I can get a bottle of 40-year-old scotch? Well, you know, I just... Wow. Do they, do they have it that old? I don't know. Hey. I think they do. I think um, they actually have 40. Well, that would be something. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, what's their end game? I mean, what so, do you think? What are they going to do? You know, they're, they're sort of stuck here, okay? So they know that they have an existing situation they have to move forward from. They can't unwind it. Like you said, they just can't make this disappear. So they have to continue to move forward with where they are. Meanwhile, a couple of things are happening simultaneously. The amount that the government is deficit spending is increasing. The, the deficit has increased about 25% this year alone in the last nine months. So that's a massive amount of additional government spending that's taken hold. Simultaneously, they, of course, know that there's still an inflation problem higher than what the Fed's target is. They're still trying to target 2% inflation, 2.1. And even statistically, according to their numbers, which I think are seriously skewed, you know, we're pushing 5%. Uh, so they've experienced these issues on a regular basis and have to make short-term decisions to try to address the problems as they come up. I agree with you. I don't think there's really any natural solution that can be derived to be able to resolve the problem. So that means we'll have to just continue to print money as fast as possible to keep staving off disaster without creating too much inflation too rapidly to force the Fed to continue to jack up rates. I mean, we're at 20-year highs on interest rates. I mean, the people who locked in mortgage rates when they were under you yeah. know, 4%, yeah. 3% and change, that was just brilliant. And they're sitting on a wonderful asset right now because rates now are, you know, I think I suggested earlier this year, we would probably be close to 8% on mortgage rates by the end of the year. And here we are in August, and we're 7 plus percent already. Is it 7 for a 30-year fix? And so, and and this has a, a double whammy effect, doesn't it? Doesn't this slow housing a bit, which is a big deal? Because people say, well, I'm not going to get out of my 3% mortgage and buy another house at 7. They, they don't want, they don't exactly. want, they don't so want to do that. Having do an they? Impact. Yeah, In they other don't words, want to do that. You know, the Fed's raised rates significantly larger than anybody expected. And if, can you imagine with all the rate hikes that the Fed has instituted, if it had not had any impact anywhere in the economy? Wow. That really would have been a problem because that would have meant that the Fed's, you know, tools are not working. So it's it's like shooting a shotgun at a target, but there's, it, the gun is empty. You're just pulling the trigger and nothing's happening. If the Fed had continued to pull that trigger without any impact on anything in the economy, this would have been much worse. Yeah. So it, after all of the rate hikes, we are beginning to see some things happening. But the labor market has been really stubborn. If for the first time in years, it effectively is the situation right now where if you want a job, there's a job to be had. Yeah, you know we're not we're not short of jobs now, so that's very powerful. But the labor market is still super strong. That does not help the Fed. But there is signs that the economy has slowed a little bit from all the rate hikes the Fed has instituted, and and that's a positive thing. But it hasn't slowed enough to beat back the inflation to the Fed's target, which means that. You know, the thought process would be you would imagine they would be leaning toward in the future continually raising rates, but they're saying that they're coming to the end, you know, and people are talking about the fact that they might start lowering them again soon, again, because they've overdone it. Inflation's still too high. 
now we're going to head towards a slowing economy that's too slow and we need to stimulate the economy so we have to lower rates again this is sort of like this walking the tightrope you know i i have been arguing for two years that the idea that we're going to come out of this without a hiccup and that the fed's going to pull this game off they're going to magically know that magic number of how many times to raise rates and how far to go but not do too much i i just find that hard to believe that we're going to pull this off yeah i i agree i i you know I, and i'm just in the bleachers and i see i see nothing so this is interesting and a good place to say it ricky uh, uh is in uh, seattle so i've been reading a lot about the idea that the central bank digital currency is going to be the the result of all of this and patrick asks about the end game is that their end game um it could be, right? They could be say, well, we give and let's just do this digital currency thing and we'll, we'll make it all work. I don't know. But that doesn't make anything work. No, I know it See, doesn't, I, but I, the people will think it does. You know what I mean? I, I, have right? a, yeah. I, I don't get that because, yes, I understand the idea that we're moving toward a digital currency, and I think that's probably, just from a technology point, inevitable. But I don't think that solves anything. No, it doesn't. It, it just allows them to do this without the ability of the general public to be able to follow the money trail. Right, right. Because you and I can still look at the Federal Reserve's economic data. We can still look at Fred. And we can look at the amount of money that they print. But if we go digital, that's lost to us. So I, I have a real fundamental problem with the idea that that the digital economy somehow solves the problem. It's not like we magically switch from paper to digital money and that what all the other debt that existed is wiped out it's not it's still there, it's still there we yeah. still have to make good on payments to bondholders we still have to pay interest payments on debt that exists we still have to make good on, on obligations to the underfunded liabilities right. that we have so nothing changes except the technical method that commerce is conducted and as you said and keeping it where nobody knows what's going on that gives you a little leeway doesn't it fred where you can well, you know, yeah. be putting out little digits yeah. more than people know about, and but uh, and then, well, but I agree. I mean, the, you have thirty three trillion in bonded debt. You got to pay that. I mean, that you know, you, you got to pay that. Right. And, and so, whether I pay you in a digital dollar or I right. write you a check or transfer the money wire to your account, again, that doesn't change anything. So, I understand the concerns of digital money. And I share those concerns, concern. but I don't think that the changeover to that suddenly solves the problem. So, you know, if people are thinking that once we get to that point, uh, that somehow all the previous issues have evaporated, uh, think they're missing the picture there because that's not the case. Well, you know what they'll do? The, the, the government will sell you on the idea that this is going to save you, you know, <laughs> This, but, well, it's always convenience, yeah. right? Oh, of course. <laughs> this is going to say It's you. always it's, convenience. It's Technological gonna, advances are always based on convenience. But I, I have to tell you anecdotally, um, what was it? It's, I, it's, it was the 90s, and I have to remind myself that was 30 years ago because I keep saying it was, oh, five, 10 years. No, it was 30 years ago. So as a joke, we used to go to retail stores and say, hey, you guys take cash, and everybody mm -hmm. left. You know, I mean, it was literally just a joke in the 90s if you went to a retail store and said, hey, do you guys take cash? If you go anywhere now, I don't care if it's a, you know, a deli, a coffee shop, a, a car dealership, a retail store. And if you walk in there and say, hey, do you guys take cash? You get a serious response. They actually think for a moment and say oh, yeah. either yes, we do or no, we don't. Right. And some places don't. But the idea that that has actually become a thing 
where it used to be a joke is really interesting to me that we've evolved that far because I've been around long enough to have watched the advent of the loss of knowledge that I think occurs over time. People forget history. It's a horrible process of human nature that we forget history. Yeah. And there's the old expression, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So we've removed ourselves so far from the original gold and silver standards that people forget there ever was one. You know, there's a whole generation of people that have never seen a silver or gold coin, um, you know, used as currency in their lifetime. So we're looking now at a situation where people are going to forget at some point in the future that we ever had paper money. Yeah. And they'll laugh about, oh, you guys used to use these pieces of paper to conduct commerce. How silly is that? How silly you know, how bizarre is that? So um, who, just in general, who are the big buyers of treasuries would it be hedge fund? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, pension funds. They're they're big buyers, right? Of, of treasuries. First is the U.S. is the other uh, foreign governments. Foreign governments, uh, China, Russia, blah blah blah. Uh, not Russia, yeah. but well, I think they still hold some. And uh, oh yeah, uh, that's the biggest. Number. Then come the hedge funds. Then the hedge now funds. Now you take uh, BlackRock for example. They now have you ready a trillion dollars worth of assets under their umbrella. A trillion. Dollars. Not one hedge fund. They're not treasury bonds, but just their own assets. No, right. just everything okay. they own. But my point being that these hedge funds are becoming so large mm. that they can impact an, an economic environment now much more than ever before. But they are big buyers. And then you have banking institutions that also do the same thing, that buy large amounts of treasuries. Mm-hmm. Pension accounts, which use treasuries yeah. as a safe haven. Because again, you know, people are struggling and saying, well, here's an economy. We have money. And there's a ton of money in cash floating around. I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars in cash that people don't know what to do with. So when the banking system uh, faltered in the spring, a lot of people decided they were uncomfortable with banks. Trillions of dollars moved over into mutual funds because they were affording interest payments at about 4.5%, which at the time was higher than you can get in almost any other obligation. Mm-hmm. You know, Now the rates have gone up on two-year and five-years to where they're comparable to those rates. They're over 4% now. Even 10-year money is close to 4%. Mm. So you can park money now in a bond, and it's actually becoming a popular investment program again for the first time in decades because the rates have gone rates up enough up, to yeah. where it makes sense. Yeah, if you get 5%. And you got money, you got to yeah, park it somewhere. Yeah, 5% here, I'll give, you, I'll give you a million. I'll just sit on this puppy for a while. You know, I guess it's not sure. terrible. It's a guaranteed 5% coming from a government institution that, as far as we know, <laughs> has the ability to make its <laughs> obligations good. And as long as that is the case. But what happens when, and I've alluded to this before, when that confidence erodes, even before the technical ability of them to be repay the debt is gone, I think the confidence would happen first. You know, right? I mean, we would see that crack before the actual crack. So the first thing that would show up is a splintering of the psychology of people saying, well, if I don't believe that the government has an ability to repay its obligations, I'm not parking my money in government debt. So I'm going to look for an alternative. And what's going to happen is, is that people will seek out anything that will pay them any kind of return on their money. And this leads to an awful lot of speculation and some issues and problems that will blow up at people, I'm sure, because a lot of these speculative things that pay higher interest rates are going to explode. So with higher rates always come higher risk. That's always been the nature of money. 
you know, the lower the rate, generally speaking, the sure. more comfortable and safe the, you know, the process yeah. is and the product is. So, you know, if you're looking for higher yield, you're also accepting higher risk. That means, you know, problems can exist that you know, normally wouldn't be an issue. But yeah, people are still loading up on treasuries now because the yields have now gone high enough to where they exceed what the banks are willing to pay. And, you know, for those banks that said, well, we see the game and we can figure out how to get people to give us their money, all we have to do is pay higher rates than what the street is paying. Well, the banks that did that also found themselves in trouble when confidence in the banks dissipated and people tried to redeem those debts and obligations from the banks. And the banks found themselves saying, okay, wait, we don't actually have enough money to make all this good. We have to sell some of our assets but the assets we're holding aren't worth what we paid for them because they were lower yielding rates that now rates have gone up and the new rates pay more. So we're getting offers of 80 cents or 70 cents on the dollar for what we have. We're losing billions just trying to sell off obligations that we have to make good on the interest payments that we promised people. So this all creates an interesting problem <laughs> when people are seeking out higher interest rates. What is Where is... Uh that no state make anything other than gold and silver a payment of debt. What happened to that? I mean, Article yeah. 1, Section, what is it? Article 1, Section 10? Article yeah. Section Article 8. Article 1, Section 10. 10. That's it. Um, so, yeah, what happened to that? Here's the weird part. There's a supremacy clause in the U.S. Constitution that says, Constitution reigns supreme over federal law, over state law, over local law. So unless a Supreme Court case overturns a constitutional provision and has set a precedent through the courts mm -hmm. that still stands as law in the United States. So it has not changed. That still stands. So technically speaking, we are getting away with all of this because we're effectively ignoring that. And the way we get past that is that Congress authorized the power to issue money and control money through this banking system called the Federal Reserve that afforded them that opportunity to sort of set that obligation of maintaining a gold standard against money up to the side. Mm. And it created a sort of a segregated system to where we said, well, yeah, that stands. So what we're going to do is we're not going to create dollars that would then be obligated to follow that constitutional obligation. We'll create notes that come through the Federal Reserve system. They will look like dollars, they'll act like dollars because we say so, and we say that the Federal Reserve will stand behind this system and we will provide the liquidity for anybody who believes in it. But effectively, they've sort of sidestepped the constitutional requirements, and believe it or not, it was that sidestepping of that original concept of locking money down to gold and silver that got me started in this business yeah, because that ago. was the first question that came to my mind yeah. when I was old enough to understand this <laughs> is how do these things exist together? Yeah. How are they simultaneously in existence? You have a constitutional requirement and yet we're ignoring it. So how, why hasn't somebody sued to protect the constitutional requirement? Well, the reason you can't is because they did set up this subset of currency that they created through the Federal Reserve Banking System. It was a brilliant way to get around the problem. And, you know, again, their rationale was to resolve uh, the huge money problems that existed in that time, which was 1907. It was the big Banking money crisis. panic of 1907 yeah. that set all this off. They ended up creating a commission through Congress to decide, how do we do this? What do we do? 
And the National Monetary Commission came up with a, an answer. They presented it to Congress, but everybody looked at it and said, look, this is an effort by bankers to su suppress a constitutional requirement and effectively shift power and control of issuing money to them under the pretense of solving an economic problem. Doesn't that sound vaguely familiar? Yeah. <laughs> so, and they've used this from time to time. Yeah. Uh, like I said, there's always the, uh, the offer of convenience to push forward a new technology. Yeah. So we can consider the removal of that requirement of gold and silver and the issue of Federal Reserve notes as the same thing we're experiencing now, which is we're going to convince the public we should move to a digital currency and that you know, we should not worry about the obligations that the Constitution requires. I, I think that's a flawed concept, and this is why I believe for some 40 years that individual Americans should own physical gold and silver coins. I believe it's the only thing we have as a way for us to counter the influences that are exterior to the public. And since the government won't keep that requirement of providing that gold and silver against money, and they're forcing us to use these notes that are unbacked, and then we create these massive problems by having done this, allowing the government to run up these huge debts to the point where the interest payments become a significant issue and that we have obligations that exceed the ability of the government to repay, and we're left with $100 trillion worth of government obligations over the next decade. All of that could never, ever have ever happened. happened with that. Wow. under a standard that required gold and silver to be backing the money because it wouldn't have allowed for that rapid expansion of debt. Congress would have had to control its spending. And perhaps people could argue, well, some things would not have been created. We wouldn't have had some government issue um, programs that people have utilized. But what's the, what's the payout? You know, what's the, what's the benefit? What's the balance point? Yeah, I mean, you, you got to think about... You got to think about... Where did this $33 trillion go? I mean, do we have roads and bridges and a solid um, social security system? No. Do we? No. I mean, we don't have no. anything to, to speak of. We got nothing asked, to show for it. Nothing to show for it. That's crazy, Fred. Right. That's now, that would have been a far better way to have spent that money. What's that? In other words, let's say they had done what you're suggesting, actually done something, yeah, done with, something those funds with it, and right. yeah. built roads and built bridges and yeah. built highways and done things like that. Well, yes, we would have spent that money, but it would have resulted in a much stronger economy. It would have increased the number of jobs, and we would have ended up with a, you know, an actual tangible thing we could point to and say, yeah, okay, we yeah. yeah, we spent, but look what we got for it. Yeah. So uh, we could pose that question, what did we get? For the for I the thirty four thirty two trillion dollars for debt. the bonded debt we've created, just more debt is all we got. I mean, Social Security trust fund has been looted for years. I don't know what what do we have for it. We have nothing. Like, and how many people in Congress are willing to say, "Well, we need to curtail the spending"? Yeah, you know, they all do it when the political year comes up. Of course, you know, during political season. They'll all tell you, oh, this is, you know, not good. And, you know, we need to make a change. And, you know, they all have their high expressions for how they're going to be better, do better. But there has not been a president since, I think you got to go back to Lyndon Johnson or John Kennedy, that has not spent more money than every president before him combined had spent. That has been the trend since Lyndon Johnson. And every president that has come into office 
has made promises to, oh, I'm going to bring down the government spending <laughs> and we're going to get better control over, you know, what's happening in Congress in Washington. But, but the reality is something they cannot really do and deal with because it means they have to turn to the public and say, okay, this has gotten so bad that we now have to start really, you know, we have to start making some cuts. Yeah. So who wants to be, you know, the one that takes the hit? Should it be the wealthy people? Should it be the poor people? Should it be the people that are on the government teat? Should it be, you know, how do we curtail the government spending? And it's politically suicidal to say to retired people, okay, we'll start with you. You know, we'll start with this Social Security. And yeah, you paid into it. Now you're 70, 80 years old and you've been paying this thing for 40 years, all your life under the promise that you get this money back at the end of your lifespan. And now we have to tell you we don't have it. So thanks for playing, but you're screwed. We don't have the money. You're talking about and a we're way just of, gonna say, I'm not hey, getting elected. Be, Boy, you don't mess with that. right? Yeah. But That's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So what's left? You know, what else can Congress do? do, do? Can they cut the Department of Defense budget? You know, that that one's difficult. You know, again, you, you, now you're going to have a political argument of what is necessary for the U.S. to do as a country. How much do we need in a Defense Department budget? Do we need to uh, have enough money to be able to support all of the military that is all over the world and the expansion of the military because we need to provide safety and security to the public? And because we're in a worldwide economy now, you know, things that happen, terrorism all over the world, it requires a substantial Department of Defense budget. So that's hard to cut. So if you can't cut Social Security or welfare or Medicaid or Medicare, or interest and payment. you can't cut the Department of Defense budget, what's left that is large enough to have any kind of impact on government spending? There are only little minor things that you can attack, and they all are you know, maybe worthy, but none of them are large enough to actually deal with the size mm. of this problem and, you know, I, I think it was a couple months ago, I, I'd math this out. I think we're looking at a $50 trillion bonded debt within the next 10 years. I'm going to say nine years now, because this is really increasing a lot more rapidly than even I anticipated. Wow. And if you do that at 5%, what's that, $2.5 trillion, something like that? Uh, in interest Just think payments. how rapidly that's going to grow. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, here's a very interesting quirk of life. Mm. In the midst of all this... Silver coins pre-1965 have been carrying a, a little premium, let's call it, you know, a, a price over the amount of metal that they're made of, which is, I believe, a fundamentally correct way of viewing their value because you have a limited and fixed supply of these things that can't be expanded. So those premiums were climbing, you know, a little here and there, a little here and there, and they kept going and kept going and kept going. Mm -hmm. At one point, we had premium expansions that put silver coins at about $10 over the price of silver itself for every ounce. The premiums have been coming down the past four or five months. Yeah. They've been dramatically reducing over the last few months to the point now where the premiums over melt are the lowest they've been in the last three years. What's that so about? What's that this about? has been a very interesting quirk. It's the first time I've seen this in a long, long time. But we're down to a point now where the premiums are down to about $2 over the price of silver from what had peaked at almost 10 That means it's much more affordable now to buy silver coins over the price of silver than it had been even a year or two ago. Wow. The price of silver keeps creeping up, 
but the premiums have been reduced. So we have a great buying opportunity for anybody who's looking to buy silver right yeah. now. It's unprecedented, and I can't imagine it's going to last long. But while it exists, coupled with everything else going on with the dollar being downgraded, the debt climbing as rapidly as it is, I see this as a wonderful time to make that transitional shift, get out of those paper dollars, and get into some physical silver coins. Uh, it looks like a terrific time for people to oh, do cool. that. So how do you do it? Now, you have pre-65 dimes, quarters, half silver dollars, right? Yes. Yeah. And you, they're in bags. Is that correct? Bags? Yeah. The the reference of a bag is an old expression that yeah. comes from the days when uh, banks used to put $1,000 in face value into burlap bags. Oh. So 1000 face value would represent 10,000 dimes, wow. 10 dimes per dollar. Mm -hmm. 4,000 quarters or 2,000 half dollars. That's what we call a bag. Oh. Although people refer to bags physically, you know, because of the, the physical entity of the bag, the reference actually technically refers to a thousand face value. So a face value thousand dollar bag of half dollars right now is about $25,000. And I think that's an amazing uh, price range for the silver content and the fact that the premiums have been reduced because at one point it was almost 31000 for the same bag with the price of silver being relatively close to where it is now. So, you know, the dollar rallies a little bit, even though the, the downgrade occurs from the credit rating agencies, the government debt has gone up. People are sort of trying to put this stuff together. And meanwhile, quietly in the background, the premiums have been reduced on silver coins. And I think that's great because a lot of people have been looking for – um, a way to add silver coins without having to pay large premiums. It's what's driven them away from a lot of the more modern coins that carry really stiff premiums of 50% or 80% over the melt value of silver. So we're down now to the lowest premiums I've seen in years. I think people should definitely be taking advantage of that. And what do you attribute the lower premiums over the last two? What do you, why, why did that You happen? know, I've talked to some of the largest dealers in the industry. Uh -huh. Um, most of them are sort of just alluding to the idea that it may have something to do with the supply chain issues, that at some point the supply chain problem had also filtered its way into the coin industry, mm. and that even just getting you know capital moving around uh, was becoming more expensive to the point where premiums were climbing. It's certainly not a supply-demand problem because demand is higher than it has been, so it's odd that these things are happening simultaneously. But it, the shifts like this happen from time to time. Um, but I do think it represents a good buying opportunity for anybody who's been, you know, sitting on the fence. And you can call Fred, and we'll give you his phone number in a second. Um, well, give you a phone number right now while we're thinking about it. Uh, 800-878-COIN-2646. A coin, 2646. So I look on the chart now, the New York spot price for silver, uh, my computer, 2374 an ounce. So same, somebody spends $10,000 or something for coin silver. Do they, Fred Dushevsky, does the silver spot price have to go up a lot to make that a good deal to buy now or not? No. You know what no, I'm it doesn't it have doesn't. to move a lot. A couple of dollars in movement in silver prices and you're, the you're you know, cost huh? of getting in and out are covered and everything after that becomes profitable. But, you know, I look at it more instead of from uh, any short-term gains that may occur. I've always believed that the idea is that I am growing in my concern over the future value of money and how rapidly it's deteriorating. And I just don't want to see the American public screwed over by a system they have no control over 
by having accidentally denominated too much of their own wealth in forms of paper that are eroding in value very rapidly. And, you know, the odd part is, is that, you know, we look at statistics for inflation, but if you talk to people anecdotally, they experience it now in the real world to the point where it's hard to ignore. You know, we used to be able to have inflation kind of more hidden amongst the statistical data, but if people didn't experience it because it was subtle and slow, it was low enough to where it just didn't show up in day-to-day life to a point where it was recognizable, you get away with it a lot more. Um, But nowadays, I think most people in their real life, you know, they go to a supermarket, they go out to buy any kind of products, goods and services, um, everything, you know, lumbered, paper, tuna fish, (laughs) I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. Everything costs so much more than even earlier this year that you can't ignore the inflation problem. And as people age, they need to address that because the rate at which this problem exists is going to exhibit itself in a much more rapid pace than what we're experiencing now. It's going to be much more devastating, much more quickly in reducing the buying power that people carry. They need to have a counterbalance to that. They need to carry a portion of their wealth in something that is going to increase in buying power along with that decreasing paper money. And nothing, nothing works better in that regard than physical gold and silver coins. Is it just a matter of having these guys in a safe and this is going to be your um, your mother load of a backstop if things really get crazy? Is that why you want it? Or are there other reasons to have these? Well, I look at position? it as, first of all, as that hedge, hedge. right? So this is why we only suggest that this be a part of what people do. I've never recommended that people take 80 or 90% of their money and buy gold and silver coins. I think they need a percentage, 15, 20%, depending upon how aggressive they want to be. Some people now are looking at a 30% level and keeping 70 or 75% of their money in the standard things while they carry a portion in that physical gold and silver because they're trying to counterbalance five years from now or 10 years from now the discrepancy in what paper money will buy today versus then, Mm -hmm. then there's the profit, you know, that people look for and that's fine. Um, So I think the idea is really about protecting one's wealth, about preserving the buying power of money you've already earned, because there's nothing worse than having worked for years or decades, saving the dollars like you were supposed to doing everything right. You know, you did your job. You didn't just wildly spend your money. You didn't go to Vegas and blow the mortgage mortgage payments. Right. You did everything right. You raised your family, you you know, bought your house, you paid your mortgage down. You did all these things and try to save a couple of bucks. And then at the end of the line, you go to spend that money and it buys, you know, every dollar that you save buys a dime's worth of goods and services. That didn't work very well. People need another method of preserving the money that they're earning for their future. And again, I think this problem is going to be, become so visible in a matter of a few years that it'll be impossible to ignore it. And we're still sitting at a really tiny percentage of Americans that physically own gold and silver. It's it's really rather small. Is and it? I think it has a lot of room to grow. We, we used to talk about uh, MZM. Can you still get that, that chart uh, online? That's, I think that's, the Fed has stopped producing some numbers. Like, remember, they the, used to produce M1, M2, and M3. Yeah. And then they stopped showing us M3, and then they made us do the math to do M2. But I believe MZM is still available. Let me see. Well, I I clicked on it, Fred, MZM. But I I was just wondering, this is called Money with a Zero Maturity. I think I heard somewhere on a radio uh, money show that it was like uh, $15 trillion now. 
but I can't pull up the chart right now. I don't see it. Money stock. Yeah, so remember that we look at the funds that we have in obligations based upon their time frame. Right. Uh, you know, you have a two-year obligation, a five-year obligation. You have things that are due today, you know, money with zero maturity, right. money with five-year maturity, 10-year, 30-year. It's just getting really hard to convince people to take longer-term maturities. So an awful lot of the government debt, one of the gimmicks that they played was to shift a lot of their long-term obligations into shorter-term bonds. That was probably a disaster, um, but they did it. So they moved from 10-year and 30-year bonds and notes into two-year and five-year T-bills. So that means the obligations come up much more rapidly, and that means that they have to be able to repay those much more quickly. So a lot of stuff has shifted to the shorter term end of the yield curve, and that is very disconcerting because, again, it just creates a lot more obligations that have to be repaid a lot more quickly. So the debt ceiling limit, which we've recently expanded, you know, we're still dealing with issues that are, that are coming due in November and December this year just because of some of the trickery that Janet Yellen uh, used in order to get us past this. Mm. And then we've expanded the problem to go out for another year or so, maybe two, and then we're going to face the problem all over again. And again, what's going to happen? The same thing that happened the last five or six times that we got to that point where Congress had run out of money. And they're faced with, uh, okay, you're holding a bond, and unless Congress tells me I can raise the debt limit and create more money, I can't pay you. And, you know, God forbid the U.S. government should default on any obligation at any point. Yeah. That is far worse than a credit rating Game over. drop by yeah. one of the rating agencies. Well, you'll like this, Fred, uh, and ladies and gentlemen. Last time we had the, the uh, MZM number, which was um, 2021, I think like 21 trillion two years ago. 21 trillion, and now they discontinued it. So it says right here, discontinued. <laughs> We're not going to tell you anymore. Okay, you guys just yeah. So this is see, it's a great, great game to play when you get to control the information. Wow. So it makes it much more difficult to pay attention. This is why I was saying that I think even anecdotally now, inflation is hard to hide. You might you can play those games, you know, on the big picture, but when people experience it in real life, yeah. it's getting hard to ignore it, and that's going to make the the job of the Federal Reserve much more difficult. Like even look at this. 2000, so 23 years ago, that money with the zero maturity, this hot money they call it, this is money that people can get right, really quickly, right? Whatever, checking accounts, uh, right? They can, and they can get it and spend it, right, if they want to. Right. Is that correct? It was only yes. $5 trillion. So four times that. In, 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 uh, so what does this mean to us philosophically or from a money perspective that people are just holding on because they're not happy? They're afraid, all the above. They're concerned. They don't know what's going to go on. They're holding Well, up. that's part, a big part of it. So when mm. the rates were too low, um, you know, when they were 2% at the banks and 1.5% at the banks or under 1% in some cases for a while, nobody really wanted to keep their money in the bank. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they end up sitting on large amounts of cash waiting for the next opportunity, whatever they may turn out to be. And, you know, that part of that went into the real estate market, drove prices higher, and prices for real estate were going crazy in America for four or five years. I mean, it was leapfrogging down here to the point where it was almost insane. I mean, a property would come up for sale, someone would buy it, they'd re relist it, just 
relist it without doing a damn thing and get more money for it, you know, a couple of weeks later. And that would happen two or three times on top of itself. Um, that was because, again, there was this drive of capital looking for something to do when rates that were pay, being paid by banking institutions were too low. And, you know, no matter what you believe about the inflation rate, everybody believes that the rates are higher than what the banks are paying. So you end up with piles of cash. There's there's a massive amount of money sitting in the U.S. banking system right now hmm. from people who have not been able to figure out what to do with their capital. I saw a video of a guy, a fellow, that wanted to get a million dollars in cash, you know, cash. It took him like two yeah. months to get it from the yeah. bank. Two months. They had to. They said, well, we don't have that kind of stuff around here. We don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that. You want what? You want what? You want cash? Yeah, but he yeah, got I'm it. Sorry. It was about, and he had a picture of it. He had about two months to get it. Two months. Wow. Two months. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the longest time frame I've heard. And I have heard stories, uh, several of them in the past year, of a number of these large transactions that were trying to uh, happen. And, uh, you know, I mean, the first thing that happens, you walk into the bank and say, I want a million or five million or 10 million in cash. And they were like, uh oh, you know, well, we don't have that kind of money. And, the, you know, the, the people will say, well, wait a minute, I deposited that. Where is it? Oh, well, we've loaned that out, you know, nine or 10 times over, in fact. So, <laughs> yeah, we don't have that, but we can put it together. It's just going to take some time. Takes a little time. Yeah. You know, I don't even think you, you can know, get over 10,000. Go Vegas and say, hey, I want to yeah, yeah. take a million dollars out of a checking account. You know, even then it would take a half a day. Isn't there even a limit on what you can take out these days, like 10000 or something like that? Well, they, I mean, the bank can't limit you to take your own money out of your account, uh, you know, effectively. But what they can do is just stall the crap out of the process yeah. and say, yeah, okay, we'll get you your money. But, you know, we can't do that today. That's going to take some time. And that used to be a day. You know, it used to be if you walked in at 9 o'clock in the morning by 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you could probably walk out with your briefcase full of cash. Really? Now? No way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, for those that have that kind of money, it would be an interesting experiment just for, you know, shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah. Walk into your bank and say, just hey, see. you know, I'd yeah. like to withdraw a million dollars in cash yeah. and I need it today. That's not happening. Well, then and that's, that's a little weird, right? Is this is weird. your money. That is weird. And the bank's saying you can't have it. And, and someday they're going to say, what do you say? You want these digits? We got this. We'll put it on your phone. How about that? Do you want that? No, thank you. I want. You know, and these are just pieces of paper, dead instruments, notes. They're not really of any value. They're just dead instruments, and you can't even get those, right? Boy. Right. I tell you what. So look at the banking institution as a whole, and and see how it shifted and changed. Wow. You know the way that they operate now, the reserves that they carry. You know, most of the banks are finding themselves parking their capital with the Federal Reserve. You know, putting their money on account at the Fed because they get paid that Fed funds rate. And, you know, they'd rather make a couple points on the interest payments than leaving the money sitting in the bank and loaning it out even. So, you know, it's an interesting situation, but it goes back to that same point of this transition away from sound money. It creates a lot of these kinds of problems. But, uh, you know, where is the value? And, you know, how far can we go before, if really people start questioning whether they actually can get their funds from a banking institution it's a little weird yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be dangerous real quick i mean look how fast the uh, psychology shifted in spring you had three bank failures yeah. just three bsv you know yeah. and it was enough it was enough to shake the confidence in the entire 
world of the ability of the banking system to be able to give us the money that we want and whether they were carrying our capital safely. Yeah. And, you know, how did they protect it? Well, you know, some of them did stupid stuff, you know, bought low yielding bonds in an environment where interest rates were rising. Well, any any economic student in college could have told you that that doesn't work. So, you know, we're creating our own problems. But the government right now is really in a very bizarre situation. They, like I said, there's there's no simple solution for them to slow down their spending. They can't raise enough capital by increasing uh, tax rates. You know, they've done the math. They, you know, even if they tax the wealthiest people in the country, 70% of the money they earn every year, it wouldn't put a dent no. into the problem. No, no. Yeah. So if you can't raise the money through increasing taxes and you're having a hard time getting the money by selling debt instruments uh, because your obligations are so vast that people are beginning to question your ability to repay <laughs> and you can't reduce the government's spending enough to make any substantial change, there is only one solution left, and that's just simply to print and print and print. And that's fine from the government's point of view, Thank but you. it doesn't work very well for the average person who doesn't have a printing press. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question from Derek. I watched a video on YouTube the other night, and the fellow said that you can actually sell your mortgage, not sell your home, but just sell the mortgage to someone else. Does Fred know, has he ever heard of this, and can you do this? Sell yeah, them. you absolutely can what do, do you mean, it. Sell um, the mortgage. A, what are you a, talking a about? A mortgage payment that pays, let's say, that is only costing you, let's call it three percent, is an absolute valuable a asset. People will buy out that mortgage and and utilize the ability of only having to make three percent interest payments on that debt, and then roll that capital over to something else that's going to pay them a well, higher yield. It's actually becoming an asset to own a mortgage. Well, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Because the okay. rates are locked in. So low. say you got a. Say you got a 30-year, 3%, baby, everybody. You could actually take that mortgage, sell it to somebody, but the house that is backing the mortgage goes with it, correct? Well, the debt gets paid off. So, for example, the banking institution that's holding that note gets paid. Oh, you'd have to pay it off. You just can't sell the mortgage as is. Well, you sell the mortgage to the second person who uses that additional uh, ability to get higher rates. So it becomes an asset. Uh, you know, it's like, for example, uh, can I sell an instrument that pays interest payments to a third party? Well, of course I can. You know, if there's somebody willing to buy that instrument because they know that they can get a better yield by utilizing that underlying capital. Again, you know, remember that secondary market for mortgage payments that was huge during the 2008 debacle. Was it? mortgage-backed securities and things of that nature. So we can definitely create a market environment to be able to resell in a secondary market an existing interest payment on, on a mortgage loan. The same way that the banks utilized that opportunity during the 2008 problem, you know, to the large extent, to the point where they had sold so many of them that it created its own issue. But yeah, you know, any kind of asset could be valued and somebody might be willing to buy it and figure out a way to make a couple bucks because, again, it's a locked-in rate. And, again, I think for anybody that did that, um, it, you're in great position. I think that was just a, a wonderful way for those people that refinanced, really? you know, 7% mortgages down to 3%. It was just doesn't so Doesn't the home that's with that mortgage, that's, that's the asset that the bank has on their books, right? So you sell the mortgage, what happens to the home? Goes to the person who owns the mortgage, right? 
Well, Anuga. the home remains in the homeowner's possession. Again, you can Anu- easily Anu- sell off the right? instrument, the, the borrowing, the capital itself, because that itself is an asset. It's a tool. And it can be resold several times over. So whoever holds that in the end will have the obligation to make those payments. But the homeowner would retain ownership of his home. He's just selling the debt instrument that he used to buy it. And again, there is a secondary market for uh, interest paying uh, investments. People will buy those things because, again, they can utilize that capital and add to their own reserves by again utilizing the fact that these are fixed at these low rates they can now utilize that capital oh, i didn't and get a higher so, return so the bank doesn't have a say in that you could just sell it to somebody they can't they can't control who owns it huh? yeah you know uh, you may won't. run into some issues uh, a lot of it's going to come down to how your mortgage is set up some of the banks may not allow you to resell a mortgage instrument like that but again if they get paid off in full i don't i doubt they'll care oh so, i see what you you're know. saying but it would have to be paid off. It's not like uh, the buyer can just hang on to the mortgage and make the payments and do what he wants. He needs to pay it off for that to work. Well, there are a couple of ways it could be done. So a lot of it has to do with the the, the legality of how the mortgage was set up in the first place. Um, some banks are sh- much more straightforward. Some of the banking institutions have already divvied out portions of these uh, loans that they make where they actually don't have full ownership of the debt. They parceled it out in pieces and parts, sometimes the interest payments, sometimes the principal, sometimes the administrative fees, just like they did when they bundled the mortgage-backed securities. They busted these things into pieces and utilized those and combined them together to make a whole new instrument. It's all paper. So, it's just all you know, paper. in any market environment, someone's going to find a way to squeeze <laughs> an extra dollar yeah. out of every way we can. And in this environment, an asset, believe it or not, a debt instrument, which normally would be considered that a debt, debt instrument, instrument debt is now actually an asset. So a 3% mortgage has now become actually an asset for Inter- people. Interesting. Well, yeah. Well, um, finally, let's talk a little bit about your, your mainstay of business, which is gold uh, gold and silver coins, mostly gold, right? Numismatics, real American money. And they go back and they're all graded plastic and containers uh, third-party graded. Um, what's the situation there as far as premiums, your stock, uh, and do you have plenty to sell? Talk a bit about that before we go. Well, nothing has changed in any of the premiums with the exception of the, again, I hate the expression, the junk silver. Yeah. You know, that lower-end, pre-65, just circulated coinage. There is the only place where premiums have come down. Everything else has remained about where it was. Uh, and the price of gold has been fairly stable between about 1940 to 1960. Uh, again, I think it's going to start creeping up. We may see a breakout before the end of the year for several technical reasons. But the premiums have remained very stable on those and have continued to grow just a little bit over time. But there's just that one spot in the concept, in, in all of the world's you know physical entities. It just happens to be taking place in that one area of the market. And I think that makes sense because that pre-65 silver coinage or the junk silver is the heavy-weighted product that's the most difficult to ship. Yeah. So that's where the cost of shipping and, and management of it logistically is the greatest. So that's where the premiums have had uh, – there's been an impact on premiums. You know, again, these things happen from time to time. Uh, they tend to be temporary. 
But at this point, the reduction is substantial enough to where I make a point of it to those that are interested in buying pre-65 silver coins. Besides the price of silver being lower at some previous point, this would now create the best buying opportunity we've seen in years for those that want pre-65 silver. Uh-huh. And then we have to be clear that you do not deal in uh, gold bars like Goldfinger and all that and 10-ounce uh, silver, none of that. Uh, that's bullion. You just do numismatics, right? Real American money. Right. Made it to print. You know, I'm a fan of any form of physical gold or silver that people can own. I think it's far better than any form of paper money. But the problem I run into with bullion is the fact that the federal government has regulated that industry and they continue to add more regulations as the years continue to move forward. So at first, it was merely a reporting requirement. Uh, mm-hmm. filling out a 1099B on those that sold that product, where I'm not required to do that on the silver coins or gold coins. I am required to do it on the bullion bars. But then they added more regulations where they tightened down. At first, it was a volume that it became all transactions. Then they started doing it on a yearly basis. Any company that did $50,000 in both buying and selling combined, either or, or combined, once you cross that threshold, everything that you do then becomes reportable. So if you deal in that bullion world and cross that threshold, you have to start reporting all your transactions. And what bothers me about it is then after that came the AMLs, the anti-money laundering rules. And this is where it got really bizarre. Mm -hmm. So what they started to do to us as dealers is they did the same thing to the tellers at the banking system. They made the tellers liable to report what they call quote unquote suspicious transactions. So if you're a regular visitor to your bank, but suddenly do something that's a little out of the ordinary, the teller might suggest that that was a suspicious transaction and force you to report that transaction to Internal Revenue and require you to fill out forms instead of just doing the transaction. And I guarantee you, like we talked about before, asking for a million dollars in cash would certainly constitute what they would deem a suspicious (laughs) transaction. Hey, George, this guy wants a million bucks. Yeah, What's yeah, nothing to, wrong with that. Nothing wrong with so that. with us, you know, I'm supposed to know my customer. So here's how this is supposed to work. Mm. If somebody buys bullion bars from me, and then it turns out the money they used came from an illegal source, because I allowed them to use my services to buy or sell that bullion product, I have facilitated in money laundering. Oh, good. Now, I become obligated to <laughs> criminal penalty time, jail time, fines, fees, government fees. I don't want to deal with any no, of that. No I don't see that there's any advantage in dealing with the bars. Again, if we ever get to a point where people are trying to conduct commerce, which, again, I, I don't think that's likely. But in any kind of scenario where you're trying to sell a silver bar, you know, the first question that always comes up is how do I know it's not lead painted Um, yeah so what are we going to start doing drilling holes in the middle of these bars and assaying them on the spot to try to determine what they're made of you know a silver quarter or silver half dollar is just something that people can recognize in real life it's a lot easier to deal with and incrementally if you have a bag of silver half dollars you have two thousand coins you could literally sell one at a time yeah you could sell a hundred of them. Yeah. You could sell a thousand of them. them you could sell the whole bag you have perfect flexibility where it's very difficult to take a hundred ounce bar and shave off a piece of it if you just wanted to raise a little bit of revenue so between these things and the fact that they can't make more silver coins you know meaning that we've locked down the supply forever and ever and ever that is a huge advantage for an investor who's putting this stuff away because it affords us the possible potential to see higher values 
exceeding the increase in the metal itself. Yeah, and the cool thing about uh, the graded coins in the plastic, they are third-party, they're graded, and you know what, they, what they're worth. I mean, you can actually go online and get a pretty good idea of what somebody's willing to pay for. Sure. You or a coin yep. shop or anybody, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's a visible market. A vis- so yeah. uh, that helps a lot, a lot of bit. There's transparency. And again, I love the idea of, of dealing in things that are, you know, uh, issued and remain under that constitutional requirement of a gold and silver standard. This is the original form of sound money. Mm-hmm. This was the idea that was originally imparted to the country. This is what we were supposed to maintain to avoid all of the current problems that we are experiencing in the financial world. None of these would have happened mm. if we had sustained this sound money concept. And it's what the founding fathers were most concerned about uh, because their fear was not only how this would impact the public, but the fact that the influence over the value of money could end up being in the hands of either bankers or politicians. And that's what they wanted to avoid. They didn't want a politician to be empowered to a point where he could affect the wealth of the public. They didn't want the banks to be in a position where they could affect the wealth of the public. They wanted a system that was, you know, even and and fair play and on a level playing field where nobody had an upper hand. So, by instituting requirements for a gold and silver standard, you eliminated the possibility of anybody having control over the system. And now without that, we are experiencing exactly what they were most concerned about. <laughs> Congress now controls how they spend money, and they can spend money they don't have because we don't have that sound money standard. We have a private banking institution that effectively controls the value of currency moving forward and the amount of it that exists, again, completely out of control of the public hands. So I think the only compensation left for the Americans are for them to own that actual physical tangible asset and own it and have possession of that physical gold and silver coinage. And that's what Fred does for a living. You can look at his little slide here. The phone number is 800-878-2646, U.S. Coin Capital with an O, Took me about two years to figure out that it was an O rather than an A, right? but you know, I, you know, I, I don't like know. the building, as we like, like the, to say. like the building, like we like to say. So you can call Fred at eight hundred eight seven eight two six four six. Talk to Fred or someone on his staff, and you guys will take some time with people too, won't you? You don't. You, you gotta, we will. You yeah, we spend a lot of time trying to make sure yeah. that people know what they're recognize doing. and understand what's happening in the economy as much as we can. You know, obviously this is difficult sometimes to impart this type of information to an average person. Sure. Uh, for those that have not kept up, a lot of people do listen to the news and they get bits and pieces of it. But again, fundamentally, you know, this is not a system that people were supposed to have to work hard to understand. It was supposed to be basic and simple. And, you know, the, the reasons that we've moved away from that, notwithstanding, we are left with a system now that's rather complicated and sometimes difficult for people to grasp. So I don't mind taking the time to try to help people get that sense of understanding because I think fundamentally, you know, if people recognize the flaw in paper money, <clears throat> it's going to make perfect sense for them to want to diversify their assets. Once you understand. If you're watching this video on BitChute, which is where we post them, you can pass on this link to people in your life that you think might be interested in owning some gold and silver and Fred will take care of them. And you can also subscribe to the to the video and then hit the little bell and we'll alert you every time we put a new one up. Mr. Dashevsky, thanks for being here. Glad to get you started and up and running. 
Yep. Happy we finally got the technology worked out again. Uh, okay, we'll see what happens next month. Every month we seem to experience a few glitches, yeah, but yeah, yeah. we got through it. We got through it. All right, Freddie, you take care. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being on You the too, Patrick. Great Bye-bye. to see you. Nice to see you. Fred Deshefsky and the real world of money is what we talk about. And he's a good guy. And uh, so check it out. Uh, if this is something that is interesting to you, um, now's the time to do it, baby. Buy man, I like I'd like to have about twenty grand and buy about twenty grand worth of pre nineteen. Wouldn't that be fun? I want some of those. Well, when our ship comes in, we're all going to buy some of it, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're going to buy some. Okay, we are going to take a little break here in about fifteen minutes. We're going to be visited with Charlie Sewell. Charlie's out in I believe it's in Tennessee, and we're going to talk about uh, freedom issues, the law, um, the courts some things you can do to kind of protect yourself, some fun things going on um, with uh, getting rid of rascals that you don't like. He's an interesting fellow, and we talk to Charlie every three or four months, and he's going to be on. So stay right there, and uh, stick around, and we'll, uh, we'll visit with Charlie. Again, thank you for your support of our fundraising little ditty that we did the last 10 days. We reached our kind of goal, and you've afforded me some breathing room. I can breathe again. So I really, really appreciate your love and support and with this. And uh, it was great. The response was just terrific. So, you know, when I get brain dead and things go cattywampus here, uh, some I had to reach out and say, you know, help me. Hmm. All right. I love you all very much. We'll see you uh, in about 15 minutes. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.